Genesis chapter 6. Now, um, for those of you who maybe are new here or haven't been here with us, we've been walking through the story of Genesis. And from the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, maybe the, the best known verse in the entire Bible, in the beginning God created and then went through all that. We talked about some of the things that we learn out of Genesis because there's a lot packed into this one book in the Bible. We talked about how we would learn first off about God and who God is and about God's character. There'd be some big picture things like that. But then there'd also be some, some little specific things that we would understand about the beginnings of things. That's what Genesis means, beginnings. We, we said we would learn about the beginning of humanity. We'd learn about the beginning of creation. We'd learn about the beginning of sin. And we'd also learn about the beginning of salvation. And so we see these themes happening throughout this book as we go through it. And where we left off in the story last time was uh, things have not been going well on created earth. Right? We went through and we saw this beautiful, perfect creation that God starts with. Everything's good. Then everything's very good. And then humanity comes on the scene. And very shortly thereafter, when humanity comes on the scene, sin comes along with it. And we looked at that story of the garden and Adam and Eve taking of the fruit and, and sinning and breaking relationship with God. And as generations continued to follow after them, what we see is not a turn for the good, not where everybody's like, oh, that was bad, we shouldn't do that again, let's all follow God. No, we see the opposite. What happens is, as people continue to multiply, wickedness continues to multiply. And as people um, continue to move on century after century, things just get darker and deadlier on earth. And so in, in the beginning of chapter 6, what we saw was God, it said God was grieved in his heart that he even made humanity. And that's heavy. And we talked about that a little bit. What does that mean for God to be grieved in his heart? But things had been on that steady decline. But even in it, even in that, and at the end of chapter 6, we saw a little glimmer of hope. And that's what we've seen all through Genesis. Even though we see the wickedness, we see the destruction, we see the death that's coming, we see this little thread of people that are still pursuing God, and we still see God pursuing humanity. And so there's a little bit of hope. It hasn't been extinguished quite yet because a few people continue to follow God. And Noah, we were introduced to at the, in the last verse, uh, last couple verses of chapter um, six or five and into verse uh, chapter six, we're introduced to Noah and he's one of those that are following God. And the last verse that we looked at last time was chapter six, verse eight, which says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor. Grace is the, the, the word there. Noah found favor. All right, and now we're going to go on in verse 9 and learn a little more about Noah. Here's what it says, Genesis 6, verse 9. Read with me. It says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the first thing that we look at as we start today is we look at the character of Noah. This is a pretty, I mean, if you're going to get your name recorded in the Bible, this is a pretty great way to be recorded and remembered, right? What it says right here is Noah was righteous. He was blameless in his generation. 
and he walked with God. That's a pretty good resume. If, if you want to get to the end, of, end of your life and somebody's standing up and giving a memorial service for you, if they could say at least those things, this, this person was righteous. They were blameless in their generation. They walked with God. You'd kind of be like, yeah, not too bad, right? I pulled it off, all right? Noah had some strong character. Now we saw, like I said from last week, that, that God had, had given him grace, this free gift. But we also see that God had selected Noah to receive his favor because he was righteous. That's why this verse is here. They're letting you know, yeah, Noah found favor in, in the eyes of God, but Noah was a righteous man, and he was blameless in his generation. Now, his generation, we've already been told, was super wicked. So the bar wasn't very high. But still, the Bible says Noah, he was at least better than most of those other people. All right? He lived in this incredibly wicked time. And even then, he chose to walk with God. And what we see, and we're going to see as we continue, is that God paid attention. Now, when we talk about character, um, we're, we're typically familiar with that idea of being a good person of character. Right? And, it, and this isn't just for church. Sure, we talk about character in church and being people of character. But you see it, you hear it at school, you hear it at work. You hear it all over the place, right? It's important to be good people, people of good character. All of us have heard that. We've, coaches will teach you that. You know, like, be, like what's your, your character matters. Not just the way you perform, but who you are as a person. That matters. We know that's true, and that's good. But here's what I want to, to bring to your attention here that might surprise you a little bit today. Character matters, but character alone, for Noah and for us, character alone isn't enough. All right? And we're going to see what I mean here in this. Noah's character, although it was good, he was righteous, he was blameless in his generation, his character wasn't going to save him. Okay? It wasn't. Um, recently, we had um, some of the extended family over together to celebrate a, a milestone birthday um, of my father-in-law. Turned 75, and we got the family together, and we took family photos. Does anybody else do that? You get together, everybody comes together, like, hey, everybody, come on. Nobody, somebody really hates pictures, but you, that's the way it is, right? You gather everybody together, you pack them all somewhere, and you, you take pictures, right? And so then you got these group pictures of the family. But here's my question for you guys. When you see this, I saw this in action um, the, the day that we did this. So we took the picture, you know, set the phone up, got the picture, and then people come around to take a look at the, the photo. How did this thing turn out? And where, what do you look at first when you look at a group photo? Yourself. Come on, you all do it. Even the most humble of you all. And that's what I'd see. I'd see people run around to the phone, and what do they zoom to? Whoop. Oh, okay, I'm all right. Now I'll look at everybody else, right? But I got to see that first. That's what we do. It's, it's, it's just natural. I don't know why, but it's, it's what we do. We look at ourselves first. And now here's why I bring this up. When we look at a verse like this about Noah, and we read that, and we think, oh my gosh, he was righteous. He was blameless in his generation. He lived in a world that was wicked and evil and awful, but he was still righteous and blameless. Ugh. What do you do? You start looking at yourself. You start saying, oh, well, where do I fit in that? When I say, wow, what if somebody said this about you? They'd be like, oh, they're not going to say that about me. I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> I'm just hoping that they say he was okay. <laughs> but, but that's the way it is. And sometimes when we look at Scripture, and, and it's a good thing, 
we look at ourselves when we read about when we read the Bible. We see things in Scripture. We see the character of people. We see how people lived. We see what they did. We look at these things. We hear these stories. And then we look at ourselves and say, hmm, do I fit into that? But before you look at yourself and ask if you are blameless in your generation, it's important to understand that we live in a different world than Noah did. It's a different world today. Now, certain things are the same. People are still people. Sin is still in the world. It still exists. Wickedness still exists. But the world changed when Jesus arrived. All right? Now, I know we're talking Old Testament here. This is the first part of the book. Jesus isn't going to appear on the scene until the second half of the book in the New Testament. But what Jesus did in the New Testament reshaped everything that had been before. All right? And the world moving on beyond past the time of Jesus, is a different world. It's a different place. And we need to be aware of that when we read the Old Testament. Okay? Noah was a man of character. And later we're going to see in this story, he was also a man of faith. But he still needed the favor of God. He had good character. But his character wasn't going to save him. He still needed favor. He needed grace. He needed help from God if he was going to be rescued. And here's what the Bible teaches us as we, as we learn the whole story and we learn about Jesus and we learn what Jesus came and expresses to us. We, as humans, are judged against the righteousness and the holiness of God. We just read a description right here of how Noah was in relation to the rest of the world. But we are actually judged according to to the righteousness, not of other people, but of God. That's heavy, all right? It's one thing if you're just to say, oh, well, as long as I make it in the top 10, you know, like the people around me. You know, I heard that God rescues the top 2%. Well, 2%, that's not bad. I, I can probably pull that off. But when we say, no, 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 and it's got nothing to do with everybody else. It's got everything to do with your righteousness before God. Now you're like, oh, hold on. <laughs> like that deck is stacked. Like, what am I going to, how, what's the chances of that? How am I going to pull this off? Listen to what Hebrews 12, 14, and 15 says. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, the righteousness, without which no one will see the Lord. And see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I want you to see this verse because these things are all ingredients that are important. Noah had great character, but Noah needed the favor, the grace of God. This passage in Hebrews says, listen, you're supposed to strive for this holiness, the holiness of God, without which no one's going to see God. But don't forget, you have to obtain the grace of God in order to receive that. All right? So trust me, there's good news in all this. Right now, you're kind of set up. You're like... I can't do that. Wait. Holiness requires grace. God judges our righteousness based on his righteousness. But the Bible also tells us very clearly in Romans chapter 3, but nobody's righteous. No one makes it. No one hits the bar. No one with the things that they do and who they are as a person, no one can make it to God's righteousness. The best of us can't do that. So do we learn that just to be defeated and be like, oh, well, I guess that's it. We're all going to burn. 
No, that's not what the Bible talks about. The way to walk blamelessly with God is not to be the most holy of your family and your friends or even your generation, but to walk in his righteousness. The righteousness that Jesus freely gives by grace through faith. This is a long passage. It'll be on the screen for you. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. Here's what it says. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We're not just looking at what you do and who you do as, as a person, right? That's not it. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh when he was in human form here on earth, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Listen to this verse. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you understand that? I know there's a lot of words there. But what's being described is, instead of us having to be blameless like Noah, God has come and given us a way to receive righteousness. It's not something that we've earned. It's not something that we have worked really hard to obtain. It's given to us by the favor of God. It's grace being given to us if we would receive it. It's the righteousness of Jesus. We're clothed in his righteousness. Do you understand that? The reason I go this massive sidetrack is because if you don't know that and you read this passage this way, you look at Noah and you're like, oh my gosh, I gotta work harder. I gotta do better. I gotta do more. Because I know right now if God comes and looks at this wicked earth, he's wiping me out with everybody else. But that's not the way it is because of the gift that comes from Jesus. All right, let's move on in our passage. So chapter six, verse 13. And here's what he now speaks. God speaks to Noah. He says in verse 13, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself, actually, let's not go there. Let's just stop right there at verse 13. I'm going to destroy the earth because of their violence. And God, what he's doing here is he's sharing his plan with Noah. When you hear this and you read the, these couple of verses, all sorts of questions start popping up. You're like, hold on. God, who went to all this effort to create this planet, he, he makes these animals, he creates humanity, they have all this activity, all these things going on, the generations are starting to multiply, life is happening, we've seen all this going, going on, but now it's super wicked, and he comes to Noah and says, you know what, Noah, I'm going to start over. But the question that comes up is, well, why not just wipe out the whole earth and start all over fresh? You're God, you could do that. Why not? You, right here, we've got it from the mouth of God. Look, this place is a mess. It's full of violence. It's wicked. It's awful. I'm just going to wipe it out. 
why not just start over with a new man and a new woman? Why not recreate the animals and go through that whole naming process again? Why not start them in a fresh garden? But this time, make that tree of knowledge a little less accessible. Right? Put it up on a mountain somewhere or something. Like, why not? Why not start all the way over? Why start here with Noah and ultimately with his family? I don't have all those answers. But I think it was so that God could actually reveal more of his character to humanity and so that his grace could be known noah and his family they knew the wickedness of the world around them they were living in it they knew it was there next they would experience the judgment of god we're going to see that in a minute but even in the destruction god would go to great lengths to save his people even if there's only one to save That's important to know about God. God wants to save as many as he can save. It's who he is. And and when you see this, uh, especially if you're new to the Bible and you read through this and you realize, wait a minute, God spoke to Noah? Yes, God spoke to Noah. He told Noah why his judgment was coming, the violence of humans. And I don't believe that this was the first time that God spoke to Noah. It's, It's the first time that we see it in Scripture. But he had been walking with God for a long time. And Noah knew who God was. And I want to tell you today, God still speaks to those who walk with him. And and if you're new to Christianity or new to the faith, that might be pretty mind-blowing. You might be like, whoa, what is being said? Are you saying God speaks? Yes. Now, when you read the Bible, it, it kind of seems like God's speaking constantly. He's like chatty. Right? It's like every other page God's talking to somebody. And you might think, oh, so that's the way it was. God just, he's just chatting them all up, talking, talking here, talking there, always talking to everybody. But that's actually not what we see. It's not accurate. Many of the incredible times that God speaks are recorded in Scripture. But in most cases, these supernatural conversations are few and far between in people's lives. All right? Now, if you know the Bible pretty well, there's a few exceptions that pop up. Moses is the one that comes to my mind first off. I mean, the Bible tells us straight out, God to- talked to Moses like a friend talks to another friend, face to face. Now, he had a lot to say to Moses, and Moses had a big job of writing a lot down. So I think that's very unique. Uh, but as you, as you move on, you look through that. Yes, the people that were alive when Jesus was alive, the apostles who got to see and talk to Jesus, who is God, yeah, they, they got to have conversations with God every day. But even the prophets, the people who were the messengers of God, they didn't hear God clearly all the time. They'd have to wait for a message from the Lord. They'd have to, uh, you know, record these things carefully. The apostles, the Holy Spirit is already on earth. And and what, what do we see? Many times the apostles are like, God, what do we do? Tell us something, please. They all had to learn to hear God's voice. And we can learn to position ourselves to hear from God. We don't know what all of the situation was when God gave Noah this info. But as we'll learn, he learned to hear God very clearly with very specific instructions. And and just, I'm not going to go all the way down this path um, today, but just to tell you, God speaks in many ways. Here's a few ways that God speaks today. Through his word. That's what we're doing right now. God will speak to you through his word. But you've got to read it or hear it. It doesn't do any good to say, speak, O God. 
You know, it doesn't happen. It's not you open the book and he starts talking and you close it back, right? That's not the way it works. You've got to read it. You've got to get it to, to hear it that way. God speaks through others, but you've got to talk with others about it. You've got to have these conversations, spiritual conversations. God speaks to us through prayer again, but you've got to do it. God speaks to us through circumstances or signs sometimes, which usually pushes back to one of the other ways for clarity and confirmation. Right? God still speaks to people. And we can all learn to grow and hear God speak. So what is it that he spoke to Noah? We see it in verse 14. Here's what it says. He says to Noah, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. God gives Noah instructions that will save his life and the lives of his family, but they're definitely unexpected and unprecedented. All right, it's not that God was always going around in this time telling people to build boats. All right, but that's what happens here with Noah. And he gives him very specific instructions. And it might have seemed a bit crazy to Noah. Even if he knew God and been walking with God and he hears God speak this. He's got to be thinking, what? Did I hear you right, God? Is that what you said? You said an ark? Like a boat? This is what you mean? His neighbors certainly had to think that he'd lost it. But that's what God says. He says, build a very, very large boat. All right, how do I know it's large? Well, he gives us this, this dimensions here, a cubit. All right, a cubit is roughly 18 to 20 inches. All right, the way that they measured a cubit in those times was they would take from the, the top of your longest finger to the bottom of your elbow was a cubit. All right, and generally, most adult humans is somewhere between 18 and 20 inches, all right? My cubit is 19 and a half inches. I measured it this week for you, all right? <laughs> 19 and a half inches, and that's roughly what it is. So that's how they would do it. Instead of needing a tape measure all the time, it's like, just lay down your cubit, you know, and measure it out. And so this arc here is 300 cubits long. So if you do the math, uh, roughly, it's, it's around 450 to 500 feet long, all right? That's, that's pretty large, pretty large. For you Navy people, that's about half the length of an aircraft carrier, all right, which is a big boat, all right? But it's about half that size, which is still pretty huge. It was about 45 to 50 feet high, which is very high, um, probably the roof in here, something like that, um, higher maybe than that, 75 to 80 feet wide. And it was to be made, it says here, out of gopher wood, by the way, this is the only time that word gopher wood is used in the Bible, so we have no real idea of what it was or even if that species of wood still exists. So if somebody's trying to sell you parts of the ark online, don't buy it. We don't even know what it was, all right? Now, here's a question that might pop up in your mind. You're like, okay, a wooden boat that's half the size of an aircraft carrier, that's a football field and a half long, if that's better for you to get dimensions. We're talking a big old boat. You might ask the question, hey, is that even possible? Could that even happen? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because here behind me, we'll have a picture of the Wyoming. All right? This is, it's hard to see. It's a black and white photo. But it actually comes back to 1909. The Wyoming was a wooden ship that was 
in service on the East Coast between 1909 until 1924. It was primarily a coal ship that just transported coal up and down the East Coast. Now, it lasted for 25 years. I will say at high seas, a, a nor'easter, it's a big storm in the Atlantic, sunk it. <laughs> All right, but it was, it was a wooden boat, almost the exact dimensions of the ark. It was 450 plus feet long, made out of wood. It was a little narrower than the ark and obviously, you know, had some other um, technologies into it. Um, but it was almost the exact length and it was made from six inch wide pine planks. All right, so it's possible. It's possible. Um, you may have seen also in, in northern Kentucky, they've built a, a replica ark now. Um, again, sorry, the picture is not that great. Um, this is not a, a seaworthy vessel by any means. But what they did is they built this model. They built this model so that you could uh, basically go and see a scale size of what that is. And it's hard to tell, but there's a little gang plank there along the side where people can walk in and out of. And there's these little specks in the bottom or people standing around it. It's a big boat is the point, right? Now, why a boat? Why does God speak to Noah and say, build a boat? Verse 17, here's why. He says, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. God reveals to Noah that he's going to bring a catastrophe on the earth. That he is going to flood the earth and destroy every living creature. But what do we see at the end there? But Noah obeys in faith. Hebrews eleven seven calls attention to this. It says this, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It was by faith that he went on and said, all right, I'm going to build this big boat. Now, the flood was a supernatural event. And anytime we hear that word supernatural, skepticism rises up. All right? Um, maybe not you personally, but, but many people, when they hear this story, they immediately reject it as that's got to be something, that's just impossible. That, that, that can't happen. Now, I understand that and sympathize with it. And, and in talking, sharing my faith with different people, you'll have different things. It's interesting how people get hung up on certain stuff. Um, I've never particularly had anybody say it's Noah's Ark. That's why I can't believe the Bible, because of Noah's Ark. But I could see somebody saying that. They're like, that's a really big boat, really long time ago. How are they going to get all these animals in here? Could it hold it? A flood for the whole earth? How would that happen? You know, I understand. I understand. Now, as I've, I've said to you guys before, if you can believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then you can believe any of the other things described in the Bible, all right? 
It's true. Christians believe some really radical things. We believe a person died and rose from the grave. All right? If you believe that supernatural event could take place, the other supernatural things that pop through Scripture don't phase you much anymore. When I read here of this supernatural flood and what it took to make all this happen, I, yes, I see it as it's supernatural. I'm not trying to, you know, gloss over it and act like you guys don't see what's going on here. <laughs> this is a supernatural thing that's taking place. All right? It's radical. Uh, as Christians, we, we still are called to use our heads, use our minds, and make sense of things, but we do believe in the supernatural. And this passage describes a pair of every type of animal supernaturally coming to Noah and basically loading themselves on the ark. All right? That's what, that's what it says here. God says, you're going to bring them in, but I'm also going to send them to you. They're going to come, and they're going to come to you, and you're going to keep them alive. Later, we'll learn in more detail that he actually brings seven pairs of clean animals um, and one of the unclean animals. And so you might ask that follow-up question then, well, how can you get all those animals on this ark? Is that even possible? Like, come on, pastor. Like, have you seen an elephant? Yes, I have. As a matter of fact, in, here in San Diego in 2018, San Diego welcomed a, 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 a new citizen um, to the San Diego Zoo, which is this little guy. Zuli, all right? This was an elephant born in 2018 in San Diego Zoo. And when a baby elephant is born, you may not know this. You might know this. You're really weird if you do. But a baby elephant stands about three feet tall, all right? They weigh 200 pounds, all right? That's, that's a big little guy, right? Three feet tall, 200 pounds. Now, you take a pair of elephants, and you're only talking six, you know, 400 pounds and not a whole lot of cargo space, that's doable. And you might say, yeah, but if you study through this story, it's like they're on this ark for almost a year. Well, in a year, an elephant grows to be about 1,000 pounds. All right? But even then, we're talking about a very, very, very big boat. 2,000 pounds in elephant is not that much with a boat. I mean, the, the Wyoming that we looked at could carry 6,000 tons of long tons, whatever that means, all right? I mean, a lot of cargo, millions of pounds could be carried in a boat this, this size, all right? So you take a couple elephants like that, and you're okay. Well, what about a giraffe? They're really tall. Yes, exactly. We got a baby giraffe here too, I think. Yes, we do. Baby giraffe, they come out at six feet tall. That's one inch shorter than me. Six feet tall. In a year, they grow to 12 feet tall. But guess what? The Bible even tells us, hey, you're supposed to make this, this thing 50 feet high, all right? First deck, you make it 20 feet tall. Man, that giraffe, even at 12 feet tall, has got plenty of space for his head, right? And then you got 10-foot ceilings on floors two and three. You can do this. It's possible. Now, is it possible? Yeah. But is it supernatural? Definitely. All right, so we're not going to try to sort through. I'm not going any farther into the zoological kingdom for you guys <laughs> on that. Yes, we're talking about a lot of animals. We're talking a lot of species. We're talking about all this. It's radical. It's, it's a supernatural thing that's being described. Honestly, I'm most amazed that they even came to him in the first place and that they didn't eat each other on the voyage. <laughs> I mean, that's the part that's probably mo most radical of all. All right? And also, I want you to see this before we move on into chapter 7. We're doing okay on time. Don't worry. I know. Um, I want you to notice verse 18 because I don't want us to fly over this. Verse 18, he says, I will establish my covenant with you. And I don't want you to miss this statement, all right? Um, 
our imaginations naturally want to run wild in, in Noah's floating zoo. And we can skim past the most important part here. The most important part is this covenant that's being described. And I don't want you to miss it. A covenant, here's a definition of it. A covenant is just a sacred bond between two parties. And throughout scripture, we're going to see the importance of covenant coming back into play over and over. It's very critical. This is God's promise to take care of Noah. All right, and so when you think about Noah stepping into this boat, stepping into the unknown and what's about to happen, you might think, wow, this is heavy. It is. It requires faith. It requires trust in this God. But this covenant is God's promise to Noah to say, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you and your family. It's very, very important. We're going to dig deeper into it in chapter 9. And it tells us there that Noah obeyed in faith. And so he moved forward with the plan. By our best guesses, as we just look at where we see um, the timeline here with Noah, and we're about to see how old he is when he, he gets onto the, the, the ark, we estimate that Noah probably took about 100 years to build this ark. About 100 years. I mean, that's a lifetime plus for us, right, to build this one project. So he definitely was obeying in faith day after day for 100 years to build this. And in chapter 7, verse 1, here's what it says. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you're righteous before me in this generation. He's just reiterating what we've already seen. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. 40 days and 40 nights. Now remember, this is a supernatural occurrence. Yes, God will use 40 days and 40 nights many other times in Scripture. I think it's one of the ways that God reveals to his people that he's behind the work. It's almost like an artist's signature. 40 days came uh, before judgment for Nineveh in the book of Jonah. 40 days for Moses on the mountain to receive the law. 40 years of wandering in the desert for Israel in judgment. 40 days of temptation for Jesus in the wilderness. We see this 40 all throughout Scripture. But in it, Noah obeyed in faith. He went into the ark and took his family with him. And it says there in verse 6, it says, And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark 
They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind and every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them and the Lord shut him in. So if you didn't get it the first time or the second time or the third time, they all went into the boat. Two and two, male and female, they're all there, and God shut them in, and the waters begin to rise. Right when you think you've seen everything after living for about 600 years, <laughs> this happens. We talked about the extremely long lifespans of humans um, during this era back in chapter 5. So if you're curious about that, how that works, go back, listen to the podcast, and you can learn about that. But, but Noah at 600 years old, heads in here, and he and the family are given about seven days to figure out their systems, and then the rain's going to start, all right? Their, their dry run is over. In verse 11, it says, the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. It seems that in its original state, earth had deep aquifers uh, beneath all of the land masses, even the atmosphere of earth may have been different. Uh, back in, 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 uh, in chapter 1, on day 3 of creation, we saw how God separated the land from the water um, on day 3. In chapter 2, it described a mist going up from the ground and watering the whole face of the ground. Um, it seems like it was a built-in irrigation system of some sort. And on this day, though, the 17th of the second month, the water main busted. Basically. So all this, this stasis that planet Earth had experienced was going to change. And water began to rise from the ground and pour down from the sky. And the entire Earth would be supernaturally flooded. The waters that had been held back in creation were now unleashed. Verse 17. This is where we finish up. The flood continued 40 days on the Earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. That's about 25 feet. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all the swarming creatures that swar swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Now, I do know that the idea of a worldwide flood is very much disputed in modern times. Um, many cultures throughout the world share ancient stories of a universal flood. Several even include uh, a boat that, that a few survivors um, made it through on. But the Bible, as you heard right here, as you read it yourself, the Bible clearly describes a, a global flood saying it's even covering mountaintops 25 feet deep. Now, there are many who argue against this and say it was a localized flood in a particular uh, region. 
and various geologists and other scientists have different opinions on it. It's, it's generally accepted that the layout of Earth today is very different than it was in the past. For instance, you may not know this, but they, they have evidence that Arizona was at one time a shallow sea. All right? You drive through Arizona now, there's no sea there. Um, things have changed. Uh, and the timelines and the details on all these different events are disputed. Uh, but certain things, like finding fossils of sea creatures on mountains, thousands of feet above sea level, are common. Right? So there's, we know that something happened. There was something different in some of these different periods of time. But here's the point that I want you to understand. Don't let those sorts of details and, and arguments and discussions, don't let those things make you miss the point of the narrative. All right, so whether or not you believe that, yes, absolutely, it was a worldwide flood and everything was underwater, or if you're the, of the uh, idea of, no, actually, it's, it's Moses writing. They're talking about their world. Everything, as far as they could see, was underwater, and so that's what's been true. Either way, it, it doesn't matter. The point of the narrative is that God shows favor to a human being and he delivers them from judgment. We can talk in all these different directions and wrestle over all these specifics of how this worked and that worked. But the point is, God saved people. The point is, God showed his favor on his creation. We want to make this book, the Bible, the story of humanity, but it's the story of God. And this story is showing us who God is and his heart for humanity. Noah obeyed in faith and was rescued by grace. And the Bible teaches us that one day God will refashion this earth and make all things new. But instead of only one family being saved, all who believe in Jesus as their Savior and receive the grace that he offers will be saved. God made a way for Noah and his family and God will make a way for us. That's what we hold on to in this. So how do you apply this to your life as we wrap it all up? Our first tendency, like I told you, is to say, well, be like Noah. Try to live righteously. All right? Be blameless and righteous in your generation. Well, if you can pull that off, go for it. The rest is for the rest of us. (laughs) For those of us who have tried and failed at that, I say that as we look at this story, we look for and embrace the favor and grace of God in our lives. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When I look at my own heart, a lot of times I don't see purity. I don't see righteousness. I don't see holiness and goodness. But when I look a little closer, I also see God at work in my life. That's the favor of God. That's just the grace and goodness of God changing me, transforming me. That's his favor. That's his grace. And yes, God calls each of us to faithful obedience. You got to see that through the story of Noah over and over. And Noah did it. And Noah did it just as God commanded. He was obedient in it. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, yet he still had to build the ark. He still had to load his family onto it and all those animals. And when he did that in faith, the Lord kept him afloat. The favor of God is available to each of us. We've just got to receive it in faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this story. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would teach us deep things about you in it. Lord, let us know your favor. God, may we know your grace and your goodness. And we see your favor, Lord, in the fact that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to die on our behalf. 
That is favor. That is grace. And as he came and lived and died on this earth, he told us that he was making a way for us in the new covenant that we'll get into and study. But in this new covenant, he sacrificed himself for us. That shows us your love for your creation. And so Lord, today, help us be people that walk in that grace Walk in that favor, being reminded and encouraged that you love us, you care for us, every single one of us. No matter where we're at, no matter where we find ourselves in our lives here today, you love us and you desire to do a work in our hearts. Allow us to follow you, to walk with you, and to hear your voice. I pray these things in your name. Amen.